Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. Museums on the Australian island of Tasmania are a microcosm of museums all around the world. They struggle with properly interpreting their colonial past, the exclusion of First Peoples from telling their own stories in major museums, and having a large, privately-owned art museum reshape a small town. This month on Museum Archipelago, we're taking you to Tasmania. Over the course of three episodes, we're conducting a survey of museums on the island and exploring how each of them relates to the wider landscape of museums. Today, we visit the Museum of Old and New Art in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. It's known as Mona, and it's by far the largest museum in Tasmania. Not only by square footage, it's in fact the largest privately owned art museum in the Southern Hemisphere, but also by its influence. On your afternoon on ABC Radio Hobart and across Tasmania, you were hosting an international podcast about museums. Where would you spend your precious travel dollars to record? That's Helen Shield host of a terrestrial broadcast radio program in Tasmania. It's one obvious answer, isn't it? She's a Hobart local, and she interviewed me about this series. Listen to how she describes the way that Mona shapes the island. It wouldn't be a trip to Tasmania these days without stopping in on one particular museum which has single-handedly changed tourism and probably the international reputation of this island, uh, stopping in at Mona. Mona, often called the Museum of Sex and Death, opened in Berrydale a suburb of Hobart, in 2011. The building, an enormous bunker out on the peninsula overlooking a river, sneaks up on you as you approach. Once you're inside, through a rather small entrance that whisks you underground, the architecture is designed to make you feel lost. There are no signs or directions, so you have to choose your own route. The maze-like paths split in two, with no indication of which way you should take, other than which one might seem more attractive to you. Tunnels and stairs which don't always move you up or down by one story, are not an escape from the disorienting experience. Instead, they might lead you to a tight, claustrophobic chamber, a lovely cafe overlooking the water, or another massive, previously undiscovered, subterranean open space. I don't think people expected it to have such an impact. It's kind of a lair, very villainous. This is Bianca Blackhall, a Hobart-based musician who has watched Mona reshape the creative community and the art landscape of the island. Hello, my name is Bianca Blackhall. I live in Tasmania. I'm 27 and I'm a musician, among other things. The museum is the product of Tasmanian millionaire and art collector David Walsh. Walsh made his fortune by gambling, and Blackhall says that he is a much-talked-about figure in Hobart. He, you know, he'd been an interesting guest at the dinner table because he's quite unusual in his manner, and he'd made his money through gambling and he was good with numbers. In his introduction to one of Mona's past exhibits, Walsh recalled spending a lot of time in Hobart's museums as a teenager. And apparently he used to get dropped off by his parents in town at the museums and he used to just walk around them all day as a kid. And then they'd pick him up again at the night and be like, come on, come home. Because maybe he was, you know, annoying them or whatever Mm -hmm. at home as a kid. With a name like the Museum of Old and New Art, Mona could pretty much include any type of art. But looking at the collection, it's clear that David Walsh has a fascination with sex and death. And bets that the rest of us do too. And it turns out he's right. 
Social animals like us love thinking about fucking and dying, and excretion and rot. Walsh himself calls Mona a subversive adult Disneyland. There's the Holy Virgin Mary, a painting created in part with elephant dung. There's On the Road to Heaven, the Highway to Hell, in which the remains of a suicide bomber are cast in dark chocolate. There are dead horses and rotting, festering wounds with swarming bugs encased in acrylic. There's audio-animatronic skeletons fucking. There's a digestive machine that turns food into feces and stinks up an entire gallery. The art tries to punch you in the gut, and it mostly succeeds in part because there aren't any descriptive plaques telling you what's important about the art or how to feel about it. I have to say I've never seen anything like it. Mm. It was really something. And this from someone who works in and spends his free time exploring museums. So often we are in the museum world, we're very stressed out by the labeling. We spend hours and hours thinking about what the labels and placards look like next to a piece of art. Ah. or um, And so it was really refreshing to just go into the museum and to see no labels at all. In normal music, it's more clinical and there's a copulating and they're um, enjoying it, always removing feeling from the equation. Like, oh, objectively, this is this, but moving on. Your only guide to the museum is its in-house app called The O. The O will provide some interpretation of the art, but that interpretation is hidden away in a little tab called Artwank, which has the icon of a penis. It's delightful to see art off the pedestal. But Blackhall says that that levity might also make it easier for the artists. I think it's a very uncomfortable thing to be asked to explain. Please explain, you know, as Pauline Hansen says, and it's like, whoa, how do I say this stuff without being a twit? It's almost like they've made the unconventional the everyday, you know, and sometimes, you know, you wander around there and there'll be people in smocks getting about and you're like, why are they, you know... Are these, are these art smocks? I'm not sure, you know, what's happening. But it's all, it's like now, it's a part of your everyday. Do you think for Tasmanians that there's a certain amount of pride that it's here? Definitely. I think people have welcomed it in, with open arms, almost. And the way people talk about it, you hear, you know, wherever you are, they're like, oh, yeah, Mona, yep, yep very good, you know. Like in a kind of very, you know, gruff way, but like, oh, yep, very good, yep. Gonna go down to the big bonfire, yep, with the kids, yep. You know, and it's good. Mona has also been well-received by art critics and by tourists visiting from outside Tasmania. As a new destination on the global art tourism circuit, there's no doubt that the museum has changed Hobart, a city of a quarter of a million people. I feel like it partly began with Mona, this, you know, Sauron's eye of tourism. Like, I feel like we're in the eye you know, that it's, it's watching us. The world is going, that island there. And it really, in the last year or two, you can feel the new foot traffic. You can really feel it. And it's a little bit, um, I, I don't know if we actually quite got the infrastructure for the amount that we of tourists that we now have. Luckily, Mona, I think, took responsibility for itself. But yeah, you can definitely feel the, and you know, we have cruise ships now coming in and out. Sometimes there are cruise ship ship traffic jams where they have to wait out in the bay for the other one to leave before they come in and yeah it's changed rapidly in a very short space of time it's quite shocking even with the crowds of people visiting it's hard not to feel alone in the space as if you're the only one experiencing the art 
The museum also hosts solstice festivals, which I'm told transform the town with musical performances and large public art installations. It's like, you know, having access to this world. Like, it feels like you've, you've got an, in, you ha, you have an insight into this world that you would mind have never been a part of had you lived somewhere else. My lasting impression is that Mona is a monument to a kind of joyful secularism in a world where monuments don't feel particularly secular or joyful. The feeling of visiting is a little like launching a confetti popper in a serious place of worship and getting away with it. It is, in short, life-affirming. A very special thanks to the newest members of Club Archipelago, Sean Blinn, Blair Chisholm, Victoria Kopeski, and Alex. Join them to support the show and get access to special bonus features like longer versions of some of my interviews, my take on the museum industry, and insider tours of museums all around the world. All with the same humor and quality you've come to expect from Museum Archipelago. Join today for $2 a month on patreon.com slash museumarchipelago and get Museum Archipelago logo stickers mailed straight to your door. That's patreon.com slash museumarchipelago to join Club Archipelago. You can find more about Bianca Blackhall by searching for Bianca Blackhall Music on Facebook and Instagram. This has been Museum Archipelago. You'll find a full transcript of this episode, along with show notes, at museumarchipelago.com. If this is your first show, don't forget to subscribe for free in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. And next time bring a friend. Thank you. Ian Elsner in Boston. Find Museum Archipelago wherever you get your podcasts and have a listen.